I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the B.C. Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Today, joining me are some old friends, Georg Kell and Andreas Rascher. Georg is Chairman of Arabesque, a leader in using technology and data to assess sustainability performance and guide investment. Also Chairman of Volkswagen Sustainability Council and the founder of the UN Global Compact, world's largest corporate sustainability initiative. Joining him is Andreas Rascher. Andreas is a co-author for the book that we're going to be discussing today, and he's Professor of Business in Society at the Center for Sustainability at Copenhagen Business School, and also Associate Dean for the CBS MBA program. They've just written a very interesting book called Sustainability, Technology and Finance, Rethinking How Markets Integrate ESG, which came out in December 22, and that's what we're discussing today. So thanks so much for joining me, Georg and Andreas. Sure, my pleasure. Pleasure. So I really enjoyed the book, gentlemen. A lot has been written and said about ESG. Perhaps there's a paradox that it's one of the most important topics on the planet. But at this stage, there's a lot of hot air and writing and and it can be a little dull. But you've produced this book. Why now? Well, we feel strongly that the area of sustainability, where many people have been working on for decades, and technology, where many more people have been working on for many years, and in the area of finance, we have many experts who focus very much on their particular traditional business models. And we felt it's time to to bridge these three different domains and to show how technology is a driving force for both sustainability and finance, and how the feedback can be brought better to the marketplace. So basically, we wanted to tear down barriers, barriers of understanding and maximize the synergies of understanding between these three distinct fields. Indeed, that's your central framework, uh, technology and ESG, technology through ESG and technology as ESG. Could you just expand on that idea a little bit for us, perhaps, Andres? Yes. The book really is, is about thinking technology and ESG together, right? I mean, so far, I think a lot of people still see them as belonging to two different spheres, but what we wanted to do is to really explore their interrelated nature. So ESG and technology would be very much about corporations using technology in the interest of becoming more sustainable. Carbon capture, for instance, would be a good example. And then, of course, we also realized that There is a way that you do ESG through technology, for instance, through blockchain, artificial intelligence, and so on. And then finally, of course, ESG as technology, there is, of course, also the possibility that there are things like cyber risk, fake news, where technological issues really become ESG issues in and of themselves. How big a contribution do you think the tech sector is making to ESG and sustainability today? Is your book essentially saying it can be and should be? a major player and driving force, or or are you saying that it it is? Well, I think our basic thesis is that technology is the most fundamental force in making change happen. Human progress depends on technological change. And uh, so we share the view that the best hope we have is to employ smart, green technology more effectively and at scale in order to master sustainability issues. Absolutely. I don't think we have many other choices if indeed human progress is to be sustained on a global level. Absolutely. So technology can be part of the solution. Is it also part of the problem in in some way? 
Well, it can be, of course. I mean, if you if you look at, for instance, blockchain or technologies like this, you also see enormous energy consumption, right? And in that sense, technology, at least to some degree, can be also a part of ESG problems. But we believe, you know, that if you balance both, if, if you look at what is possible through technology, through digital technologies, through integrating this into ESG, and then look at the problems, we believe that the benefits actually are, are much greater and that they outnumber by far the problems that we are seeing. In the introduction to the book, you say that it's not enough for companies to treat ESG as compliance or risk management exercise. So I wanted to ask you, what's the difference between ESG for compliance versus ESG for advantage or ESG for incremental change versus transformational change? Well, ESG was initially conceived as a materiality risk tool management. And as such, it has found widespread application. That function, ESG as a risk management tool, will continue to be important, not least because there's lots of new regulation coming forth. We have a nice chapter on that in the book as well. But ESG as a long-term perspective to rethink business models and how future fit they are is really the more forward-looking perspective where the role of technology becomes more important when you rethink your current business models and you apply the simple insight that the irreversible change is happening in the context within which business operates and the need to decarbonize is absolutely a given thing. Then you ask the question, how can I reposition my current business for the future? And that's where the strategic, long-term, forward-looking perspective comes in. And that's where the synergies between technology as part of the solution is even more pronounced. We just had this extraordinary period of history in business where the cost of capital was, was effectively zero. And we've just seen a, a normalization if one looks at the Fed's interest rate path. I mean, it looks like a higher cost of capital is, is back for the indefinite future. And logically, I think that should lead to pressure on the short term and perhaps a deprioritization of the long term. Do you, do you see that as a risk? Do you, do you worry that the progress we've made or the progress we need to make is somehow in jeopardy because of this fundamental shift in capital markets? I wouldn't see this as a, as a major risk. I think it is also a myth that ESG only pays in the long run. I mean, you may address long-run goals or long-term goals, but the effects of addressing these goals can also be very visible in the, in the short run. So I think there are plenty of ESG issues that affect firms in the here and now and look at effects of climate change or poor governance. Poor governance can ruin a company also in the, in the short run. So I think the basic message is here. It has been shown that good ESG performance, of course, reduces the firm's cost of capital, but I don't think the current developments on the market will jeopardize this. No. You have a very interesting chapter in the book on the connection between resilience and sustainability. And the chapter talks about something called the Darling Framework, detect, absorb, recover, and learn, and the intersection with ESG and sustainability. Could you tell us a bit about that? Resilience is about a firm's ability to, to kind of absorb shocks and respond to unexpected events. And I think this is what the authors are referring to, you know, that this is a lot about adaptation. So I think at the end of the day, what we are referring to when, whenever we look for how ESG can contribute to, to enhance resilience is for resilience to happen, you need a certain kind of mental flexibility, I think, or mental variety, you can also say, you know, see things also in a different way. 
And if managed effectively, ESG can provide such variety because it prepares the firm to, to see more of itself and its own environment. And I think this is really where the value added, so to say, comes in. Another really interesting chapter is the one contributed by Herbert Dies, the former CEO of Volkswagen, who, who talks about the sustainability transformation of Volkswagen. Georg, as leader of the VW Sustainability Council, you've got first-hand experience of that. What can business leaders learn from VW's sustainability transformation and similar transformations? Well, two lessons, basically. One is the crisis lesson, that every crisis is a huge opportunity to reimagine the business model and make things differently and become better prepared for the future. On the other hand, Herbert D's chapter is a wake-up call also to show how a change in the external environment, the need to decarbonize, necessitates technological change, fundamental change, the move to e-mobility, battery cell production, and so forth. So it's a classic case study of fundamental transformation in the light of ongoing changes. And sustainability is core to it because it's one of the key drivers in it, the other being technology. (laughs) So (laughs) that chapter actually is a signature chapter of our book, so to speak, because it makes the point very clear. And there's a different chapter which covers a related topic, which is the idea of digital with purpose. So not just the compliance on the items of ESG, but using technology towards a a purpose that presumably emphasizes climate sustainability. Tell us about the idea of digital with purpose. Yes, the idea is quite inspiring. And uh, the global initiative that is behind it, major IT companies share the view by and large that digitalization, technological change needs to be linked with some wider, higher purpose. And in this case, clearly linking it to environmental issues, for example, is a long-term vision that sustains and helps to grow business. And it basically is rational interpretation of the fact that the two mega forces that drive change is one is environmentally the necessity to change. And the other one is technology. And the sweet spot for the future is clearly where the two converge and meet together. And that's the digital with purpose paradigm for for the companies. In reading that chapter, I, I was quite interested in the framework. There's this three layers they talk about. At the bottom of a pyramid diagram, you have digitally enabled solutions. In the middle, you have responsible business. And then at the top, you have purpose. And I guess my thought on reading the chapter was that we can measure the stuff at the bottom of the pyramid because that's closest to the ESG metrics that everybody is is working on. And I wonder whether we need to and whether we can actually measure things higher up that pyramid, whether we can measure purpose, compliance of purpose, achievement of purpose, and so on. Would you say that we can and we need to? And is, is that a sort of a frontier in sustainability? It is certainly important, I would say, that we reflect on purpose. I think um, measuring it probably directly is very difficult because purpose really goes to the core of the corporation and it goes to the very existence, so to say. So I think probably you can find indicators that, that give you an idea about how purpose is developing in an, in an organization. Weak signals like, for instance, employee turnover or also the relationship of the board with senior management. But I don't think, you know, you can measure it easily. Also, because purpose is always extremely context sensitive. So having standardized measures on it, I think, would be, would be very, very difficult. 
Yeah, I would even go a step further and argue corporate purpose and corporate culture are intimately linked and the difficulty and complexities of culture and organizational soundness are very hard to capture. It has a lot to do with leadership, as we all know, with the spirit that prevails in, in the organization and very hard to measure as such. But once you feel it, you know it. <laughs> so it's probably the most difficult part of the sustainability paradigm is measuring or trying to get a handle on, on purpose and culture. So changing gear and coming back to this nexus of the, of the three forces, one of the essays in the book argues that we, we ought to think about not just ESG, but ESGT, that technology is, is so central in so many ways that this should be part of what we measure when we're trying to achieve sustainability goals. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the, the argument for that? Basically, this, this argument is that the technology side contains many issues that are relevant to sustainability, which are not adequately captured by the other three dimensions. Uh, consider problems like cybersecurity, fake news that can significantly affect a firm's ESG performance. Look, for instance, at, at COVID-19, right? I mean, COVID-19 has, has pushed many people into work from home. And in many cases, these people worked outside of protected corporate firewalls, and this happened overnight. So this throws up new issues. You can also, for instance, consider, and I think the authors of this chapter also look at this, the, the ransomware attack on the U.S. colonial gas pipeline in 2021. And these examples show that we need to think of, of ESG more holistically so that we do not miss some critical risk and opportunities um, that are likely to be material for firms. And I think the point of ESGT is not to simply add another letter, but to really extend the entire framework in a way that we get a more holistic understanding of what really impacts the social, environmental, and governance dimension. Now, the technologies we will be considering if we expand this idea of your book of ESGT, of course, will not be yesterday's technologies. They'll be tomorrow's technologies. So right now, for example, AI in the form of uh, chat GPT is much in the news as a source of opportunities, but also risks. Can you tell us something about the, the technologies that are, that are coming in the future and, and how they will impact sustainability? Well, I want to make one example in the area of finance because the book devotes quite some chapters to the role of finance in the transformation. And AI and sustainability in finance are currently being cultured on a, on a big scale. And it's easy to predict that ESG measurements will be AI supported, if not AI managed in the next round. So ESG 2.0 will run through self-learning big data exercises where the materiality, both backwards and forwards, based on experiences available, will be actually assessed. So AI will find its way into financial valuation, into asset management, into financial allocations on a, on a big scale. It's a question of time. That is one certain application that is just around the corner. And my own firm is working on that as well. Many other domains we know of where the need of technology solutions is obvious are well known and well established already. The question is market conditions and scalability. And if you look in the US, the IRA, for example, focuses on specific technological solutions which are well known in the energy transformation sector, in the mobility sector, utilities, and so forth. So there it's more an issue of how do we bring to scale established technologies which are already available. 
So it's a blending. On the one is what's around the corner of new disruptive forces, and on the other hand, how to bring to scale existing technologies that serve also the long-term sustainability agenda. Mixed bag. I'm wondering what you see as the, the key bottleneck in progress towards climate stability, Georgian Andreas, because on the one hand, you do have some powerful arguments in the book, like the ones you just laid out, that technology could be transformational. It could take us from thinking about things at the level of data to thinking about things like causality and causal relationships and knowledge and learning. On the other hand, you know, I think it's possible to assert that you know, it's much simpler than that. It's about commitment and corporate purpose and behavioral change and transformation. It's about executing well what we know already. You know, it would be a, a miracle if both of those things were equally important. On the whole, which do you think is the more important factor? In my view, it is actually pricing, current pricing. We see all around the world that old technologies are still being subsidized on a massive scale, that externalities, pollution is not priced. It's basically free in many major markets. So market incentives have not yet adopted to, to the new understanding of what is a threat and what is an opportunity. That is certainly a mega driver out there on a global scale in emerging markets as well as in OECD markets. On the other hand, the scalability of new solutions needs to be much faster. And what holds it back both in the US, in Europe and elsewhere, it's old regulation born out of the industrial era and complexities that new solutions find hard to overcome. So scaling up new solutions is not easy when you work in a system of, of regulation, which has been built over decades with another paradigm in mind. So we have systemic barriers that are quite massive and that need to be overcome. Andreas, you had a comment? Yeah, I think I very much agree with what, of course, Georg has been saying. At the end of the day, I would probably put my cards on, on technology. I mean, if you really <laughs> see, um, as, as you framed it, both as different sides, simply because if technological solutions really come through, you, you can scale these things probably in an easier way than you can, for instance, scale that corporate purpose fits in a way that we can effectively fight climate change. Both matter, of course, but I think in terms of scalability, looking into the future, I would put my bet on, on technology. So a huge topic and limited time, and unfortunately. So maybe let me end with, a, with some more personal questions. So one of the things that some of the essays touch on is, is the human side of change, that we, you know, we've, we have the accounting aspects, the technology aspects, the sort of technical aspects of climate change and sustainability. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the dreams, hopes, fears, and, and behaviors of, of humans. So I wanted to ask you to be the first guinea pigs for an experiment that we're conducting. Uh, we're trying to create something called the Climate Imaginarium, where we're trying to collect and record and analyze the collective human consciousness and imagination around sustainability. So I had a couple of questions for you, some personal questions. So imagine it's 2050, and you're talking to your, to your loved ones, and they've asked you, did we make it? Did we inflect the, the climate change curve, the emissions curve? Georg, did, did we make it? It's 2050. Yeah, I'd like to be an optimist, but my experience in life is that system change is, is one of the most challenging things humanity is ever facing. And unless there's an external disruptor or major threat, I fear we will not speed up enough to be able to say by 2050, we have made it. 
If you live in the Northern Hemisphere or if you move to Canada, then maybe you can say, yes, we made it. <laughs> but uh, probably many other parts of the world will not be able to say so. I'm really sad to have to conclude that. But after 25 years on the climate agenda, I see the slow progress and emissions continue to rise globally. And I don't see that this tidal wave is changing dramatically anytime soon. Scientists predict 2.7 degrees Celsius warming now. It may be even higher. So we have to anticipate that we will live in very volatile, disruptive future decades. And it will not be a gradual evolution to 2050. It may be a very uncertain, unexpected evolution. The hope I have is that when major disruptions will happen and they're bound to happen, that then values and policies and behavior will change on a massive scale because humanity has an enormous capacity to adapt to crisis situations and then one is prepared to change behavior and values. So that is my piece of hope on this journey to 2050. And let me ask you about the inflection point. So supposing your children or your grandchildren said to you, what was the turning point? What, what opportunity did we miss such that we're in the position that we're in? What critical opportunity might be missed the way that we're going, do you think, Georg? This is the tragedy of the story. It's like the frog in the water that is slowly warming up. It may be anything we can't even imagine at this point. I like to quote, uh, refer to recent history in Australia where I have quite some experience. And Australia has lived through dramatic uh, natural disasters in the last couple of years. And now it seems like there's a general awareness growing that we have to do something. So a tipping point seems to have been reached. Also in Europe, I'm surprised positively when I go back to Germany, for example, and I realize there's a national consensus that this is a top priority issue. And then I wonder, how has this happened? Well, it happened gradually with individual incidences shifting general awareness. And at some point, there's a social tipping point. But when that exactly happens, is very hard to predict. Very hard. Andreas, let me ask you the same question. It's 2050. You're talking to your children or your grandchildren. Did, did we make it? No. I, I very much concur with what Georg has been saying and outlining. I don't think that we can claim to, to have made it. I think we will have made progress, that's for sure. We will have lowered probably CO2 emissions. But if you look at the science right now and everything that we hear is that we would need to change in such extraordinary ways in such a short time horizon that I think given the current political environment and also what the regulators are not doing, actually, globally speaking, I simply cannot imagine, you know, that we will meet even the two degree goal by 2050. So I think what Georg is saying with 2.7 degrees uh, sounds quite realistic to me. And what's the inflection point? What's the biggest opportunity that we, we missed on that journey to 2050? If you look back in retrospect, standing in 2050? I think not pricing carbon emissions early enough was the biggest policy failure worldwide. Still subsidizing fossil fuel consumption and production on a level higher than total investment in renewables. That is clearly a collective failure. The hopeful aspect is that at some point, governments by and large will recognize 
that indeed, you know, we have a collective enemy out there. <laughs> the enemy is, of course, us. So it needs a total reorientation. We are still in the old paradigms of power thinking, and we haven't realized that interdependence because of climate change and health issues and other issues is so fundamental to our long-term survival. That realization hasn't sunken in yet, but it may sink in when major incidences happen, and they will happen, and then we have collectively the ability to rethink and reprioritize. I have no doubt at some point we will arrive at the conclusion that climate change is our common enemy, and as our common enemy, it requires the highest attention. But we are not yet there. We are still thinking in old paradigms. Let me just add something to this as an educator. I think what we, when we look back, what I think what we will realize is what we missed is to educate our children in the right way. Because this is truly an opportunity that we missed. I mean, we still don't educate children from the very early ages on in a way that they are equipped with the tools to really understand this crisis, the climate crisis, and also the biodiversity crisis, and to react appropriately. Of course, the young generation is aware and we see social movements and so on. But I think when it comes to missing opportunities, we should have started to educate people in a different way 20 years ago. And then we would also be at a, at a different place today, I think. Well, I, I didn't ask any more questions in case we generate any more dark storm clouds. But <laughs> I want to thank you for both coming on the podcast to discuss this, this very important book. We've been discussing sustainability, technology and finance, rethinking how markets integrate ESG, which came out in December 22 from Routledge. So thank you very much, Georg, and thank you very much, Andreas. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Martin. I really enjoyed learning about some new topics, I think, on reading the book. There's a, a chapter on ocean technology that was very interesting, the chapter on resilience. I hadn't thought about things that way before. There's good coverage in one of the chapters of the actions and the potential of some new financial service players to the sustainability scene, namely the sovereign wealth funds and ultra high net worth individuals. So I, I felt the book for me sort of took me to the leading edge of uh, sustainability thinking and I'd strongly recommend it on that basis. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome feedback. So please reach out to the Henderson Institute directly if you have any suggestions for future topics or guests or any feedback. <laughs>